new pride and joy, and you're thrilled to own them, right? So you invite me, the obvious choice, (laughs) to go play a round of golf together with you, and I am enamored with your new club. So I ask, can I just try one of those? And you kindly agree, so I take out one of these shiny new clubs and give it a once-over and then proceed to start just hitting rocks with them. And your obvious reaction is going to be horror and anger. And in that story, you purchased a set of golf clubs for the purposes of your own joy and using them to do what they were made to do, hit golf balls. Uh, But I have wrecked them in a way that is damaging and contrary to their purpose. They aren't made to hit rocks, so doing so destroys them. And the the point is that in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, Paul argued that God has purchased us for union with himself but the Corinthians went about wrecking themselves by throwing them throwing themselves into sexual immorality, which is contrary to God's purposes. So this section, starting in verse 12, follows on Paul's rebuke in verses 9 to 11 that people who give themselves over to sinful lifestyles show that they are not members of God's kingdom. Those whom God washes, sanctifies, and justifies are, are made citizens of heaven by Christ's work and are supposed to grow in acting like they are citizens of God's kingdom. And there was this list of sins in verses 9 and 10 that manifestly contradict what God's people are supposed to be like. But in verses 12 to 20, Paul highlighted the issue that was certainly present in that previous list of sexual immorality. Commitment to, commitment to sexual immorality then is a hundred percent out of accord with God's kingdom. And a life devoted to it proves we don't belong to God. Now, the, the pivotal point In this section is verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. That's a strong... Flee it. That's the summary of and an inference from everything leading up to that and and encapsulates what Paul said in the verse just after that. Paul, Paul based this premise in three arguments within these verses, and and all three are really deeply theological and valuable. So, So, in verses 12 to 14, Paul rebuked sexual immorality because of Christ's purposes for our bodies, and then in verses 15 to 17, he appealed to Christ's authority to dissuade them from sexual immorality. And in verses 18 to 20, Paul grounded the charge to flee from sexual immorality and Christ's ownership of his people. Now, I, I really tried to get through all three in one sermon, but it became huge. Andy encouraged me to preach for two hours. Uh, but I'm on holiday after this. So I wanted a, I wasn't worried about you. I wanted a closer finish line.
Uh, no, we're actually going to spend three weeks on this. Not because I, I want to overdo the practical thing, although it's supremely important, but each one of these arguments are, are worth our deep consideration. So the main point tonight, as, as we focus on the argument to flee sexual morality from the point of Christ's purposes for our bodies, the main point is that Christ's purposes for us mean we should flee from sexual immorality. Christ's purposes for us mean we should flee sexual immorality. So, and we're going to think about that in three points, slavery, souls, and salvation. Slavery. All right, in verses 12 to 14, Paul confronted two slogans. Maybe, maybe you noticed there, there were these, are they quotation marks or inverted commas? Quotation marks. Okay, so, uh, quotation marks. Maybe you noticed those, and these are slogans the Corinthians used to defend their sexual practices. So the first one that they used is in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So many of you know that the law's role in the Christian life, especially when accounting for the different kinds of Old Testament laws and how they relate to the New Testament, is not always a straightforward thing with one blanket answer. And in this case, Paul likely used the phrase, all things are lawful for me, in Corinth, to explain to them why Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws no longer bind the Christian. And we can think about this in in the sense that, as we'll see later in this book, the Corinthians significantly misunderstood the religiously lawful ways of using food, namely which foods were permitted to eat. So that's an issue for them. When Paul taught them that all things are lawful, he meant in reference to indifferent ceremonial laws like clean and unclean foods. It seems that the Corinthians transposed this principle about indifferent things onto sexual ethics. Possibly, since their pagan Greek culture considered fornication indifferent. So in contrast to that, Paul clarified that the principle of Christian liberty doesn't have unlimited application. There are bounds to it, namely God's moral law. So Paul refuted the Corinthian use of this slogan that all things are lawful with two responses. So the first response was that even if all things are lawful, not everything's helpful. We, we can see how this point works in wider application if we consider other portions of Scripture. So Paul argued in the book of Galatians 
that Christians don't have to be circumcised in order to be justified, which proves there's liberty. You don't have to be circumcised. Um, but then he turns around and he circumcises Timothy in Acts 16.3 to make ministry easier for him among the Jews. So uh, Timothy's Christian liberty in that context wasn't profitable. So he forwent it. So Paul told the Corinthians, even if, for sake of argument, even if you have liberty on a certain issue, doesn't mean you should use it if it isn't helpful, profitable liberty. But further, the Corinthians were not actually using liberty but were letting themselves be enslaved to their old ways of life. We need to understand biblical language about freedom in a specific way. As, as sinners born in Adam, we are coming into this world enslaved in sin. We're bound to it. We're mastered by it. And when the Holy Spirit brings us to faith, He sets us free from sin's dominion in our hearts. And so, so Paul wrote in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And his point was about being free from the law for justification, but he made the same point in 1 Corinthians 6.12 about sanctification. If we turn back to the sins that characterized our old life, it's going back to slavery. Using the freedom that Christ has won for us to go back to sin runs totally contrary to Christ's purposes for us in redemption. I think that often people think of God's law as a bunch of rules to limit our fun. But the truth is that that God made us with a specific nature in His image. And, and that entailed certain purposes from creation and to run against those purposes because of our sinful appetites now after the fall is to jump back into slavery. We wouldn't say that it's squashing fun not to let me hit a bunch of rocks with your golf clubs. It's not what they were made to do. We also wouldn't say that someone just likes to rain on people's parade if they point out that you shouldn't try to cut a steak with a spoon. Spoons weren't designed for that. But they have a, a different purpose. Just like we design things to fulfill specific purposes, so too God designed us that way. We were made with a purpose. And if we act contrary to the way that God created us to be, we have enslaved ourselves to something contrary to our nature. So like God designed fire 
to be inclined to give off heat. That's what it's supposed to do. So too, he created humanity to be inclined towards sexual purity. That's what we're supposed to be. The Corinthians had been enslaved to sexual sin. And and here they are trying to rationalize indulging it again as a Christian. And this highlights in a really pointed way how sex is actually an authority issue. And I want to highlight that here, but it's the focus of the next section, but it's it's really important to get that this is actually a matter of authority. Here, though, the point is that the law is not restrictive, but freeing. It tells us how we're meant to operate. So we need to see that sexual immorality is slavery to what is contrary to our nature. Which brings us to our second point, souls. So the, the, the second Corinthian, um, the second slogan the Corinthians used and, and Paul's response to it are in verses 13 and, and 14. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Right, so the ESV notes the slogans that the Corinthians were using in, in quotation marks there. But now here's the thing. So the original Greek doesn't have punctuations. So we have to make decisions about where they go. And sometimes that's really obvious. Sometimes it requires more care. And I think that the ESV actually misplaced the closing uh, quotation mark in verse 13. So it should go all the way to at the end of the sentence after, and God will destroy both one and the other. The whole thing is part of the Corinthians phrase. I think this is significant enough. If you're okay with marking in your Bible, maybe you can add one there at the end of the sentence. So uh, this is, uh, this, okay. So to explain this, their claim was that food exists for the stomach and that stomach for food, but neither one really matter because God's going to destroy them both. So that's why we can do whatever we want with our bodies. God's going to destroy it, whatever it's meant for, doesn't matter. So they used this point about the stomach to argue that no bodily functions matter because God just destroys your body at the end. Anyways, do what you want with it. So Paul responded to that. That God made the human person, which is composed eternally of body and soul with specific purposes. We're, we are meant for certain things. And actually God will resurrect our body at the last day. So it does matter what we do with them. So, so Greek philosophy, the background to this issue is, uh, Greek philosophy that the Corinthians would have imbibed, especially in the tradition of Plato, often devalued physical reality. 
The, the, the physical stuff isn't as good as the spiritual stuff. And that idea had lingered in Corinthian thinking. They had continued to think that since physical reality is bad and only the spiritual reality is good, then it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies, even as Christians. But that line of thinking has nothing, nothing to do with biblical doctrine. When, So when we read the early Genesis accounts, which Paul quoted later in this passage, we see that God repeatedly assessed the physical universe as good and the creation of humanity, which includes our bodies, as very good. The Corinthians had forgot that, forgotten that, and thought that the ideal existence is one without ties to the physical universe. God has other things to say, as he reminds us through the Apostle Paul here, that Jesus' saving work didn't end at the cross, but at the resurrection. Jesus came back to life in his body. And we have to affirm that as Christians. Paul wrote in Romans four twenty-two to 25, that is why his, Abraham's, faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' atoning death, so let me clarify this, Jesus' atoning death completed everything that was necessary for the forgiveness of your sins. Which is why Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. But like we considered last Lord's Day morning about the doctrine of justification, forgiveness of sins as absolutely necessary as it is, is only half of justification. Christ earned our citizenship in the new creation by his obedience, so God raised him back to life in an incorruptible body, as will become so crucial when we get to chapter 15. The resurrection is non-negotiable, and is a pivotal piece of our faith. So it it is, yeah, so we should think about this. It's fine to speak about being concerned about the salvation of souls as long as we know that what we mean is the eternal salvation of the whole person. So, th- so that language developed, uh, soul, salvation of souls developed in contrast to social gospel aspects. The gospel doesn't save you from poverty. It saves you for eternity. And so that's where that distinction comes from. But w- we need to know that God does indeed save our whole person. The resurrection 
is non-negotiable. And we need to think in terms of the goodness of creation and of the physical world and that God will will restore the physical world and our bodies at the last day. Heaven is not disembodied harp playing sitting on a cloud. God will undo everything that sin has inflicted upon us, which includes the deterioration of our bodies. It is part of sin's curse that our souls will be temporarily separated from our bodies, which means that our bodies are not prisons for our souls, but an important part of our whole person, which God created good and we ruined. We need to see that our souls are not the only important thing in redemption, but God redeems our bodies and they matter as well. Brings us to our final point, salvation. So the, the point about the redemption of our bodies is our passage because Paul responded to the notion that our bodies don't matter since the Lord will destroy them by saying that actually God created our bodies fit for relationship with Him. Our bodies are not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And are not destined for destruction, but for resurrection. Salvation, then, includes the whole person. So, just as how salvation affects the way we work in our souls, it should also really affect the way that we use our bodies. We shouldn't use them contrary to God's purposes. Just like using golf clubs on a pile of rocks violates their purpose and ruins them, so too using our bodies for sexual immorality violates God's purpose for them and ruins them. Paul wrote, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, this phrase, I mean, he obviously constructed this to emulate, but also to refute the Corinthians phrase about food for the stomach and the stomach for food. When, When Paul wrote throughout his letters of the Lord, he referred to Christ and, and not non-specifically to the triune God. So he's talking about Christ. So your body is intended for Christ and Christ for the body. Now, here's the thing. Clearly, we've got to think hard about this because obviously Christ and the body do not have the same mutually dependent relationship as food and the stomach. God has created, as this passage tells us, created our bodies fit to be united to Christ, though, namely 
through our resurrection. God did not make our bodies incapable of or unfit for eternity, but made them in a way that they could become incorruptible, made them that they could become glorified like Christ is now. So in in that way, our bodies were made fit for communion with God from the beginning. And Christ's return will transform our bodies to be like Christ's in glory. Now on the other hand, the Lord Christ is meant for the body in a very specific sense. And this is where we, we have to engage our brains a bit more. God, God's eternal Son, obviously, didn't always have a body, but existed forever as the second person of the Trinity. Yet, God's Son became the incarnate Lord in order to redeem His people from the consequences of our sin, and that redemption culminates in the resurrection of our body. So in a very specific way, the Lord is meant for the body, not in the sense of His eternal divine nature, but in the purpose of His incarnate life that was intended for the redemption of our bodies. The incarnate Christ was meant for... So the Lord was meant for the redemption of our bodies. And since Christ assumed a human nature to redeem it from death and ultimately glorify it, well, actually, clearly, I mean, does that not make it more than obvious that he cares about it? And so then what we do with it? He, he did not secure your eternal salvation and glory so that you might sully your body now. And that is why we have to flee. This is not a soft term. Flee sexual immorality. Paul does not say, like, right, there are times when Paul will say fight. He doesn't say fight. He doesn't say stand strong. He says flee. Run the other way. I mean, be afraid of this. Right? This is a hungry bear in the forest. And you don't want to play with it. This kind of sin is bad news. And we, we just have to be honest. Blanketly, we are not strong enough to mess with it and win. You have to flee it. We don't, we don't look for the line. Where can I get and be okay? We go the other direction. Run away from this. And I would plead with you. Pray for your pastors and your elders. And Satan loves to kill ministry with this. It, do, it doesn't matter if this isn't an issue 
right now in our leadership. Let me implore you, pray for us. God would love to, no, no, sorry, sorry. No, blank that out. Satan would love to decimate this church by having us fall into sexual immorality. Pray for us. Please. And pray for yourselves. This is standing on the train tracks. This is matched to a powder keg. And the good news, though, right, as scary as this is, though, we don't flee endlessly. We don't just flee from. We flee to the Lord Jesus who has won our salvation. God raised the Lord. And he will raise us up with him. We find our freedom in the Lord Jesus if we turn to him in faith. And he remains close to us to help us in our struggles. Even interceding for us when we fail. Comes alongside us to help us in our fight as we do our best to reflect his character, not be like the nations, not profane his name among the peoples, but to glorify him in our bodies. Let's pray. Father God, we sense your urgency about this matter. Uh, we see what you have inspired the Apostle Paul to write here and how we must flee and how there are these three supremely deep arguments that make us take this so seriously. Help us, God, to flee. But help us not to flee as a burden. Help us to flee towards the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross to buy his people. And we know, we have even read, we are bought with a price. We belong to him. Help us run to him. Help us to find joy in being free from our sin. Please keep us pure. Work holiness in us, not in a self-righteous way, but so that the world might see how wonderful you are as we find delight in being pure. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.